I had a gospel conversation with Mike a few weeks ago. It was a good one. It was uh, uh, breakfast. We'd been praying for Mike and his family for like seven years. And uh, so we had this great conversation that was all gospel conversation for two hours over breakfast. And uh, it was giving and taking. It was talking and listening. It was learning and kind of discovering. And at one point, though, the conversation got really quiet. Our breakfast was done, and um, the waitress had come and taken our, our dishes away, and then we were just drinking coffee, and he kind of moved back from the table, and then he says, um, i got a question. And you could tell that this question kind of came out of the bottom of his soul. He said, uh, you know, I, a long time ago I went to Vegas, and... I was young, and, and I gambled away all of my money, and I was driving home in the dark in the, in the deserts of Nevada, and I was at the lowest point in my life. And he said, so then, the first time I ever remember doing it, I talked to God, and I said to God, God, uh, if you're there, I need you right now. And so I said, so what happened? And he goes, well, that's just it. Nothing happened. Well, he said, I hit a rabbit. I'm like, that's it. He said, that was it. I I hit a rabbit, and then that was it. They say, uh, what you do in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? (laughs) But it doesn't. It follows you home. The record... uh, it stays with you, and, and it did him. Now, how, if you, how would you have answered him? What would you have said to Mike if he said, I remember kind of in the dark night of my soul and my guilt, and I was at the lowest point in my life. I remember talking to God, but I don't think he said anything back to me. You ever had that feeling like God, who promised to always be there, isn't? Like, when you need to hear from him and you don't? Did that ever happen to you? Do you always get immediate verbal answers, miraculous answers to your prayers? Like me? This morning I'm going to tell you an old story. Would that be okay? story about romance. How would that be? Guys are like, I'm leaving now. Don't listen to romance stories. Everybody loves a romance. Even Rich loves a romance. Happen to know that. He's getting the elbow in the ribs right now, as a matter of fact. (laughs) Everybody loves a romance, but not everybody will admit it. But they do. And sometimes, though, romances turn to tragedies, right? And even worse, sometimes romances that turn to tragedy turn to scandals. I'm going to tell you an old story today about a romance that turned to tragedy, that turned to scandal involving a young preacher, of all things. A young preacher. This this is a Bible story. It's an old one. The preacher's name was Hosea. Go to Psalms and go to the right. Make your way to the right, through the big prophets to the little prophets, the, the longer prophets to the shorter prophets. I guess no matter how you say that, it doesn't sound right, does it? They sometimes call them the minor prophets. Hosea is the first of the minor prophets. So you're working from Psalm back to Daniel and then Hosea. The preacher's name is Hosea. He's a preacher prophet. 
He's in the northern kingdom, right? This is Israel, they call it Israel. Or sometimes they call it Ephraim, because the largest tribe in the north was Ephraim. So sometimes in this book, the nation is going to be referred to as Ephraim. It's Israel. It's the northern kingdom. And God is sending Hosea to be a preacher to the northern kingdom. Nothing unusual about that. He's going to go from town to town. He's going to go from village to village. It's a time of prosperity in the northern kingdom, outward prosperity, financial, material prosperity, and relative safety. And so there's a sense of safety and the sense of prosperity. But it's, a, it's an outward show because down inside what's really going on is Israel has become very unfaithful to their very faithful God. And so God who is ever faithful and ever patient, is going to send them this preacher. He's going to send them this prophet. And what he's going to do is he's going to send a preacher with not just any old talk, just kind of a boilerplate prophetic message. He's not going to do that. He's actually going to use Hosea's life in this most remarkable and unusual and painful and shocking way in order to get their attention. He's going to do something with Hosea that you would not think God would do. And that makes it a really interesting story with a romance, with a tragedy, with a scandal. The northern kingdom is going to fall into Assyrian captivity. That sounds all historic and everything, but it's horrible. Assyria, when they come in... It's a little bit like ISIS kind of sweeping through a culture and just destroying a culture and and just butchering people. This is Assyria. This is Assyria. And this is going to happen to Israel. And God is faithful to say first, before this happens, I'm warning you. I've been faithful to you. You need to be faithful to me. But I was going to tell you a story, right? One of the preachers, his name is Hosea. He's a preacher in the towns and villages of the northern kingdom. God's been faithful to Israel, but... Israel's continually being unfaithful to God. Now God says to, God says to uh, Hosea, here's what I want you to do. You know, sometimes when a preacher has a message, God says, go get some training, you know. Go off to Bible college and learn the Bible. Not, not Hosea. God told him, I want you to get married. Well, that's good. This is looking good. And he says, and I want you to marry a woman who isn't moral. You're going to be spending the rest of the afternoon trying to figure the theology of that out, aren't you? I'm just reading it. I didn't write this stuff. Hosea, this is the story. In chapter 1 and verse 2, go take yourself a wife of harlotry. Not, not necessarily a prostitute here, but a woman who's not moral children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry in departing from the Lord. So he picks this woman. Her name is Gomer. You say her name sounds weird. Well, if she was here, she would think your name sounds weird. So there you go. Anyway, back then it didn't seem weird. Her name was Gomer. He picks a wife, Gomer. God says, I want you to marry a woman who's not going to be moral. Because your life and your message and your testimony are going to be an example of how Israel has been unfaithful to me. And so here is this young preacher who takes a wife. And they begin to have children. And perhaps he feels like, well, this hasn't been going very well, but maybe if we add a child, you know, the little child will kind of draw us together. And we'll kind of fix our problems and we'll patch up our differences. But it's not the way it is. Three children 
are given names. And like it often is in the Bible, the names are representative of things. And they're representative of what's going on in the nation of Israel. Everything about Hosea is a message to Israel, including the names of his children. Jezreel is the first name. Verse 4, I'll avenge the blood of Jezreel upon Jehu and cause uh, to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. Jezreel is a reminder of, of of a tragic time in Israel's past when they were judged by God. You remember Ahab, Jezebel, and all of that, and this great bloody judgment that comes through. Jezreel would have been recognizable to anybody. It would be like to a Jewish person saying, his name is Dachau. So every time he called his little boy's name in the marketplace, it was a reminder of God's judgment on Israel. Now the whole family is supposed to be a message. God judges unfaithfulness. His name is Jezreel. Next comes a little girl. Her name is Loruhama. Call her name, not pitied, for I will have no pity on the house of Israel to forgive them. So this child, a girl, and this girl is apparently not Hosea's child. Loruhama was a reminder that people would shortly come under the power of a cruel, pitiless invader. And then there's Loami, call his name, not my people. That's verse 8, the third child. Call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. So whenever Hosea calls his boy's name, he'd be reminded that Loami was a product of Gomer's infidelity. And a reminder to Israel of their infidelity. Does this make sense? Now, as if you thought this story couldn't get worse, Gomer then, after the three children, decides she's going to leave Hosea. You see that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And then it's a sad, difficult situation. It becomes even more sad and more difficult. And Homer leaves uh, Hosea, uh, Gomer leaves Hosea to practice more infidelity. And he becomes not just a single parent, but a, a single parent preacher of all things. Can you imagine? So he's preaching, and you can imagine like people's whispering behind his back. Chapter 2, uh, and... Uh, Verse 1, say your brethren, my people, do your sister's mercy is shown. Bring charges against your mother. Bring charges. She is not my wife. I'm not her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight, her adulteries from between her breast. Lest I strip her naked, expose her in the day that she is born, and make her like a wilderness, and set her like a dry land, and slay her with thirst. This is not a happy story. It's painful, difficult, hard story. Gomer then leaves Hosea. And then... Hosea follows her life. She's still his wife, so he follows her life and pays attention to her well-being, even though the people that she's with don't care about her well-being. He does. And he actually privately goes to, to them, and he actually funds, gives them funds so that she'll have what she needs. She doesn't know it or recognize it or take the time to figure it out. And the partner that she's with takes this, and he, he's actually funding this, And he's being good to her and kind to her, and she's completely not acknowledging his faithfulness to her. She's taking his gifts. She's living up his gifts. She's benefiting from his fidelity, but she's not returning any fidelity to him. Gomer takes up with this man, and she's supported by her her real husband. Chapter 2, verse 8 says, She's not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine, the oil, who lavished on her the silver and the gold. This was a picture of Israel in Hosea's time, and it's a picture of humanity today. And if I can be more direct, isn't it really a picture of all of us in our infidelity to God? 
Who of us has really recognized God's great faithfulness and thanked him appropriately and lived with an ongoing sense of awareness of God's great patient fidelity to us? Who of us could say, I, I'm, I'm, never, I'm, I'm never unaware of his mercy, never unaware of his goodness, always act in appropriate ways, and I've never been unfaithful to him. Who, who of us could really say we've never really been unfaithful to God? And so now, after all the broken dreams and the broken hearts and the broken promises, God says, chapter 2, verse 14, I'm going to allure her, though, and I'm going to lead her to the desert and speak tenderly to her. And I'm going to give her back the vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope, which is a, it's a shadowy, poetic reference that you wouldn't recognize if you didn't you know, study, carefully, study carefully through the Bible. What is this valley of Achor? Does this remind you of anything, Lois? Remember the old camp meeting? Lois's home church has a camp meeting every summer, and they call it Camp Acor. And I was kind of wondering when I first saw that sign, I thought, immediately remembered, like, Acor. Isn't that where the guy got stoned for his, for his why would you call it Camp Acor? It's a bitterness. It's judgment. And what, what God is saying through Hosea here is she needs to go get to the end of herself and to her brokenness and to her bitterness and to her judgment and to her recognition of her unfaithfulness and her sin before that becomes a door of hope then. And he's, what he's saying is that none of us will ever be where we ought to be with the Lord until we have that sense of brokenness and then there's a door of hope that opens then. And then you smell the fragrance of the vineyards. This would be like, remember when you were dating and when you were in, in your, the first flush of love and there were fragrances, I wouldn't tell you because it would be embarrassing to my wife, the, the particular fragrance that I can remember that she wore. And I will never forget it and I will always associate that with those times of our first love. And so it is with Jose and Gomer. He says, I'm gonna, would you come back to a beautiful place where you'll be safe? And do you smell that on the air? Do you smell the fragrance of the vineyard in the night on the air? Do you remember? Would you let me love you again? Would you please be faithful to me? But that's not what happens. God never forces us, does he? But he does allow us to experience the consequences of our choices. And Israel is going to have to feel the full force of the consequences before she recognizes God's love for her. And that's the picture in Gomer's life. At this point, we finally reach the, it's at the point where we finally reach the end of our, like, ability to run from God. That's the point where we go through the door of hope. It's where we need to go. That's why we sometimes find ourselves driving through the desert at night, feeling like we're praying to a God who isn't listening, because we have to go to God through the door of hope, which, which begins in a place of brokenness and confession and acknowledgement of our unfaithfulness. And his faithfulness. God always involved, knowing God always involves dark nights in the desert dealing with the weight of guilt and the emptiness of life. And you've had that if you know God. And just when you think things can't get worse, that's what happens. Sometimes they get worse. And that's how it's, it works when we're determined to spurn the faithfulness of God. Now, now the next thing that happens is the, the men get tired of her. And Hosea is following this, and the men that have toyed with her, used her, are now going to actually traffic her as a slave. And that happens there in chapter 3. You see the little short chapter there, which is much about the personal life. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who's 
loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel. He's saying, here's what I want you to do. They're tired of her, and they're going to put her on the market. They're going to put her on the slave market. And in that time when they put a woman on the slave market, they stripped her of her clothing, and she stood there naked, shivering, exposed, in front of leering people, and they bought her, and he went to the auction, if you will. He went to the slave market, and he outbid the others, and the actual amount is given here in the text. He bought his own wife back, and you can imagine the crowd standing around and says, I know what's going to happen now. He's going to punish her. He's going to give her what she deserves for being unfaithful to him. But that's not what he had in mind at all. That is not at all what he had in mind. He bought her out of this slave market. He re- they call that, there's a word for that in the Old Testament, it's called redeemed. He redeemed her out of the slave market of her own unfaithfulness because of his undying faithfulness to her. As a picture of God's undying faithfulness to his faithless people, he bought her and covered her and brought her home and asked her again to live in fidelity to him. He redeems her. And Lord's said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she's loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and an omer of barley. So Hosea scrapes together enough money to outbid the others. And you can imagine people saying, you know, that's what he gets really for telling everybody else how to live. He can't even keep his own marriage together. Chapter 3 again, verse 1, the Lord says, Go show your love to your wife again, again, and again, and again, right? In loving Gomer this way, Hosea acts out the love that God had for Israel. In, In acting this way toward his wife, his life becomes like a sermon message to how God feels about his people when they're faithless to him, like Israel, like, like, like us. The idea here that is really clear, even when we're not faithful, God is faithful. If we're redeemed, we're not redeemed because he saw so much value in us or so much goodness in us or any faithfulness in us. If you are redeemed, it's not because God wanted you on his team because you're so special. You are special. But you're completely unfaithful, and God is completely faithful He doesn't redeem people because of their faithfulness. He doesn't redeem people because of their inestimable value to him or because he's lacking something. He redeems people because he's faithful. That's what he's like. It's a story that he told that would be passed down through thousands of years and millions of people so that he would know what God, so we would know what God's like. He doesn't love us because we're faithful. He loves us because he is faithful. So Hosea's purpose is to reclaim our love This is in verse 3, I told her, you are to live with me many days, and you'll not be immoral or intimate with any man, and I will live with you. If you think about that, this story is really the Old Testament version of the prodigal son, with a twist, isn't it? James said this in the New Testament. James, brother of Jesus, apostle, James, you adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with this world is hatred for God, enmity against God. So James said, strong words. You say, I want to be cool, I want to be hip, I, want to, I don't want to let go of the world. Well, if you, if you, if you go off and you're unfaithful to God, if, you, if you're friendly with the world like that in sinful stuff, then you're committing adultery against God. 
You're unfaithful to God. He's using the same terminology. It's very common in the New Testament. Don't, do you think the scripture says in vain? The spirit that dwells in you yearns jealously for your affection. That's verse 5. James 4, 5. You think this, this, this is an important point to get? James says, do you think the Bible is just like wasting its breath when it says the Spirit of God lives in you and He's jealous over you? He yearns jealously for your affection. You make your rightful husband jealous with your unfaithfulness when you flirt with the world or sleep with the world or compromise with, with the world. God was present in my friend's car that night, driving across the Nevada desert, probing his conscience. Maybe he was driving through Acor, judgment on the way to hope. Maybe God had a preacher move in nearby that would make him a part of his daily prayers for years and love him and listen to him. Maybe God really did answer his prayer that night. So you're asking, so what does this have to do with becoming an irresistible community of love, Pastor? Everything. Everything. We were all naked, shameful, shivering in the slave market of sin and infidelity against God when God in his unflagging faithfulness came and paid the price of redemption to buy us out of all of that. Every one of us. Look around. Everybody you're sitting next to, that everybody this, on every pew and in here in the pulpit, every one of us are not Hosea in this story. Every one of us are Gomer in this story. Every one of us. That are bought out of the slave market of sin. But God is faithful to redeem us. And, and when we remember that, this is the thing about the becoming an irresistible community of love. A, a group of people that remembered that, that slave market experience, and see themselves and other people in that same, that one another, we see ourselves and one another that way, and others, that can't be anything but an irresistible community of mercy showing people who are saying, God will show mercy on you if you repent. Judgment if you won't, like that's what we did. It's not that we were better than you. It's not that you don't know the secret code or the secret handshake. It's not that you don't have, you haven't met the entrance requirements for our wonderful organization. That's not it at all. Like we were naked, shivering, shame and, shame and guilt on the slave market of sin. And, and our faithful and merciful and ever patient God sent His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Savior. Hosea's name means Savior. Same as Jesus. To buy us out of that slave market to redeem us forever, to take away our sin and our guilt forever and forever, to give us a home forever, to make a fragrant, beautiful place for us to live forever with Him without the shame of our past because He covers our sin and makes us pure and holy before God. What a wonderful thing to know. And now if that's what drives us, how can we be anything less than irresistible as a community of love to other people? You may wonder this week, how would a church deal with an announcement like Bruce Jenner made this week. How's the church supposed to respond to that? Would you not be too quick? Would you please not be too quick? Christ-like people don't react with a knee-jerk reaction to sin. 
Their hearts are tender. Their hearts are patient. Their hearts are understanding. They call people to, out of, in love and patience, to repentance. Yes, they call them to repentance. But they extend mercy for years. This is what Jesus is like. This is what our world needs to see in our response to a guy like Bruce Jenner. Tremendous love and affection and care and, and understanding and interest. And yes, a call to repentance. That's what we are. We're a community of the redeemed. That's what we're called. The community of the redeemed. That are showing other people the way that they too can be redeemed and free. And the confusion that crushes all of us. The sin crushes all of us with some kind of confusion. That confusion that morally corrupts and crushes all of us will only be lifted one day when we are in our glorified state. And then all of the mess that we are in this fallen state will be redeemed totally and completely in our glorified state. That's a wonderful message. They don't think that's what we're saying. That's not what people out there think about us. It's not our responsibility to control what they think about us. It's not. It's only our responsibility to be a faithful witness to Jesus' mercy and his judgment. That's all. So why did God have Hosea, the prophet, marry an immoral woman? Why? Well, obviously, God was doing something. The beauty of the Hosea-Gomer story is this. God was preparing, and maybe only if you take preaching seriously, I'm, I'm not sure you get this unless you take preaching seriously. You don't just like study a few words and go out and tell people stuff. God takes you through a crushing process. He teaches you lessons that hurt. You go through a crucible of preparation, and then you say, okay, now go. And now talk to the people. Don't you dare. Go talk to the people. If your heart is broken, you don't represent me. If sin doesn't break your heart. If you don't know what it feels like to have somebody be unfaithful to you, how can you represent me? When all that I've had, God says, is unfaithfulness against me. He prepared Hosea. And when he went from town to town in those dusty villages, he had a message that boiled out of his heart because he knew what it felt like to be betrayed. He knew what it felt like for God's heart to be broken with the unfaithfulness of his people. And he's eager to use you too. Can you remember this? When bad things are happening, God is so powerful that he's up to something good. Would you say it was a good thing for a woman, a young Christian, who who didn't have a lot of teaching or training to fall in love with a guy who was an unbelieving guy who became an alcoholic? And Would you say that was good or bad? It's kind of bad. It wasn't a good thing. And they had four kids, and he wasn't really much of a dad. She had to work extra hard second shift, make ends meet. You can look at that little tiny house and that little common neighborhood, you can say, that's really sad. She might as well be, it'd be better if she's a single mom, what she has to put up with. But if that didn't happen, your, your pastor's wife wouldn't be here. And all of her eight kids, something really bad was happening, but God was doing something really good. And you might have something that's just killing you right now, just crushing you, just really hurting you. And it might be something you can't even talk about, and people wouldn't understand. I want to tell you right now, God, He 
Well, he's always doing something good when something bad is happening to you. You need to believe that. And he's forming you a message with your life that's just so powerful and so fragrant and so real to people that you can help other people with that broken, that message that you don't even feel like you can really tell other people. Can you imagine Hosea getting up every day to preach, somehow arranging for the kids to be cared for, and then faithfully going back out and saying, it's my job just to tell people that God still loves you even though you're not faithful to him. It's my job to tell you that there's going to be judgment coming. Judgment is coming. If you don't turn from your sin and repent, judgment is coming. It's going to be horrible. I want you to know this. God in His mercy has told me to tell you. And He preaches from His heart. He's eager to use you. But when He uses you, He may form a message in you that was very painful. So the church is made up of gomers. It's interesting, how can we in our dark day of unfaithfulness become an irresistible community of love? Here's a unique way of thinking about it. Two, two, two ways. Number one is, see yourself as Gomer, because you are. Or you're not redeemed yet, right? So see yourself as Gomer, that's what I'm saying. Don't say, God, here I am, I've, I've had my devotions today, do you love me now? I gave my tithe, are we good? Don't say that. He says, oh, you don't get it. Say, God, I remember that... When I was naked before you, shivering, shame, and a slave market of sin, and you bought me out. And you showed your faithfulness to me. After all those years of unfaithfulness, you were faithful to me. See yourself as Gomer. That will help you. Amen? And here's the other thing. You, you, you know, see, act like Hosea. See yourself as Gomer and act like Hosea. So don't look around, but... Feel the presence of the other people in the room right now, your brothers and sisters in the faith. And treat them like Hosea treated Gomer. And God treated you. And won't we have an irresistible community of love if that's what we do? I told my neighbor, I said, hey Mike, I said, you know, I'll tell you this. Um, I draw a little line on a napkin, you know, and draw a straight line right here in the middle of the big long line. I said, way back here on this end of the line is a young guy who doesn't even know if there's a God. He's just wondering, is there a God? He's just talking to the night sky and wondering if there's a God. He gets a little bit further and maybe he becomes convinced that the God of the universe is the God of the Bible. And then through the mercy of God, he learns a little bit more that the God of the universe is the God of the Bible had a son whose name is Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ wasn't just a good teacher, but that he died for his sin. And then I drew a cross across the line. And I said, and if there's a door in this cross, and if you step through this door and look back, you know what you will see? You will see that when you thought you were all alone, you were not. You were not all alone. That God was there. God was allowing you to go through all that you went through because you needed to go through it to get where you are now. And then there's a, there's a further line, and one day when we're all with the Lord, it's like we'll be on the mountain, and we'll look back over our life and we'll say, oh, now I see what you were doing. But I didn't have any idea then. It just hurt so bad, and I just felt so desperate, and I felt so ashamed. It was so hard. But then when we look back, when we're with glory, in glory, when we're with the Lord, and we'll see everything, and we'll see that He was with us all the time. A young man, years ago, he went down to the bluegrass state. He found a wife, and he took her back. They lived in Chicago, as I heard the story. They lived in the Chicago area. So he had his little hillbilly wife with him there from the bluegrass, and they were living in Chicago, and he was working, and they were doing fine. 
she was just the light of his life, and she loved him, and he loved her. And then she got sick one day, had a fever, and it affected her mind. It affected her, her mental well-being. She couldn't even carry on a regular conversation. She couldn't sleep at night. She was tremendously afflicted and troubled. Sometimes in the night, you just cry out, make loud, terrible noises, and the neighbors begin to complain. Is there anything you can do? You need to institutionalize her. He said, I'm not going to do that. And he, he bought a home out in the suburbs, in the, western, in the western suburbs of Chicago, so that he'd be farther away from his neighbors, so that he could just stay with his wife and do with, for her whatever he needed. And he took her to get help. And finally, one of the counselors says, you know, I think what might help is if you take your wife back home to Kentucky. You go to her old home place. Just hold her hand and walk with her. Take her down to this stream where she played when she was a girl, through the field where she used to pick flowers. Let her hear the bird songs and feel the sun on her head. Maybe it'll help her. So he took a long trip. His wife didn't even speak to him. She didn't sleep. She was troubled. Took a long trip. And back to, back to Kentucky they went. And they went back through those fields for childhood. And all those things that nothing worked. None of those memories triggered anything good in her. He was so crestfallen and brokenhearted and disappointed, he got back in the car. She was sitting on her side of the car, and they started driving home. And after a while, she fell asleep, and she hadn't done that for a long time. Just fell into a deep sleep and slept all the way home. When he got home, she didn't even wake up. He just picked her up. And he carried her into his bedroom and put her in the bed, covered her up. And he sat down on a chair beside her, and he waited, and night came. And all through the night, he sat in the night, and he waited and watched over her. And then finally the morning came. He opened the windows, and the air came in, and the sun fell on her face, and she woke up. Clearly there was life in her eyes again, and she had rationality and conversation. And she said, I feel like I just went on a long trip. I feel like I just went on a long trip. And I just woke up out of a long trip. She says, where were you? And he said, Honey, I've been with you all of this time. And I never went away. The sweet old story of Hosea is for people like you and I to know, even when we have been unfaithful to God, and the night that we're in is so very, very dark, and we feel completely alone, like no one's listening, that he has been there all the time. And when that sinks deep into our hearts, how can we be anything but irresistible as a community of love? Let's sing together, okay?